Welcome to episode one of IQS Tech Factory talk series. In this first episode, we talk to Benjamin Joff, partner at SOSV and a key figure in the launching of Hacks, the world's largest hardware accelerator. Good afternoon, everyone, and thanks for joining us today to the very first IQS Tech Factory talk series. My name is Oriol Pascual, and I'm the managing director of IQS Tech Factory. We are a European hub for industrial innovation and entrepreneurship located in Barcelona, where we help to create the next generation of industrial companies. And how do we do that? Well, we run an acceleration program where we support hardware-based startups that develop a prototype and we help them go to a first industrial series. We also run an annual uh, event around industrial innovation entrepreneurship with a trade show, a conference program, and an investment forum. And finally, we manage a community of uh, heads of innovation at large industrial uh, companies that they are looking for innovative technologies and are looking to connect with innovative startups. So why do we do this? Why do we uh, decide to launch this uh, talk series? And, and, and what is the main goal? So um, as a hub for industrial innovation entrepreneurship, one of our goals is to promote the idea that investing in industrial ventures uh, is something that is positive for the economy and it's, uh, it's beneficial for everyone. And one way to do that is to have conversations with the key actors that are making it happen. So we plan for the upcoming uh, weeks, uh, every other week, we are planning a series of conversations with scientists, entrepreneurs, investors, and, and accelerator managers in order to hear from them on how to make this happen. Um, before we start, I would like to thank uh, to the IQS Tech Factory team and to the Barter team for making this uh, event possible. Um, so thank you very much. And also I would like to remind you that you can send your questions. Um, there are two ways to do that. If you're watching this through our uh, own website, on the player, there is a, a chat option. You can send your questions there. If you're watching through Twitter, you can uh, send tweets with the hashtag IQS, uh, no, sorry, the hashtag TalkSeriousIQSTF. And we're gonna uh, grab the questions from there. And, and at the end of the session, uh, share them with uh, with Benjamin Joff. Actually, this is a great way to, to do a segue from the introduction to introduce our guest today. So today we have with us uh, Benjamin Joff. Uh, Benjamin is partner at SOSV. SOSV is a $277 million uh, fund on early stage deep tech uh, companies. Something nice about SOSV is that as well as they're investing, they're running several acceleration programs for science-based ventures. So they have an acceleration program for hardware, they have one for uh, bio, they have also for mobile and for food. And these are really nice, nice combination. So the reason we uh, invited Benjamin to join us today is because he is uh, a key person and he's been a key person uh, building uh, hacks which happens to be the largest hardware acceleration program in the world. And, and well, 
uh, he's a prominent figure in, in that area and we want to hear from, from him. Uh, Benjamin is a mechanical engineer of uh, education and he's been living in Asia for a great part of his life, for more than 16 years. I mean, he can tell us something about that. Um, and finally, uh, Ben is also the host of the podcast From Lab to Market. It's a podcast that has been released uh, recently. I think that out of the, that's one, it's an opportunity that has been developing out of the the confinement, but actually very interesting. If you're interested in science-based venture, I'm interested to hear how investors uh, uh, investing in these kind of ventures uh, think and work. It's a must, it's a must. So uh, remember the podcast lab to, to market. So Ben, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. No, it's, it's awesome to see you again. Actually, last time we saw each other was in Barcelona. Uh, Benjamin, join us. You join us in our event uh, in uh, at the end of January, and and so many things happen in the meantime. Huh? Yeah, like uh, now there's almost nobody in front of Sagrada Familia, I think, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. That day, that day we went walking around. It was packed, and now there is nobody. So, hey, we would like to have a conversation with you in general. I want to learn about you. We want to learn about, about hacks and how you work there, but also having a bit of the, the perspective on the future, how is the current situation affecting the, 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 the science base and, and hardware um, uh, ecosystem. But my first question will be about, about yourself. How did a mechanical engineer end up being involved in, in the second most active uh, early stage fund in the world? Well, it's a... Uh... It's kind of a strange uh, story, but uh, so I graduated as mechanical engineers. That that's about almost like pretty much twenty years ago now, and uh, I did work in uh, aerospace briefly at Airbus, and I realized that the engineering type of work uh, wasn't really the my best suit, and I was very interested in corporate strategy and innovation. So I ended up working in a consultancy, researching innovation across Asia. Uh, and I moved to Tokyo uh, at that time. And then I kind of one thing leading to another, I kind of stayed in the region and ended up uh, moving to Beijing um, and uh, starting consultancy, uh, researching innovation, mostly in the digital space as well. And from that, that got me closer to startups. I started angel investing. And then one of the founders of uh, SOSV um, contacted me uh, to help them uh, with the hardware program that they had just started a year prior in, uh, in Shenzhen. And uh, eventually I joined and uh, I thought I would join to help them with one program and uh, now it's been over six years. Hey, but you started angel investing. You were all directly already investing in hardware-based startups or you started first with the, the more digital... I was more into digital things. Yeah, I didn't know much about hardware. Uh, there were very few hardware startups at the time. Uh, but what I found interesting in the hardware space is that I felt we were at a very special time in um, where the su supply chain was finally opening up to smaller companies. Uh, it used to be kind of a, a closed garden of large companies, uh, but the Shenzhen supply chain was now open for business, more and more for small startups, and the um, like hardware startups were connecting the physical world and digital world in, in a way that wasn't possible before. So I think there was a really interesting um, shift and uh, opportunity there. So I also saw that 
very often, like through my, my years in Asia, I saw innovation in all local markets that had really hard time expanding overseas or being translated overseas. But with hardware, you know, you, you get generally one key function in a device and nobody reads the manual anyway. So it's not as culturally sensitive as software, strangely. Um, so I felt there was a, finally a, a, an ecosystem that was not only very important, but actually globally relevant. And that as, as investors, being able to bridge the Shenzhen ecosystem with the, um, any other ecosystem where the innovation would come from and then targeting international markets, particularly the US market, uh, would, be, uh, would be a very great positioning. It's it's funny you mentioned this connection between the the digital world and the and the physical world because actually something we see ourselves uh, we have this acceleration program and and the realization is that there is no uh, dumb hardware anymore actually every um, uh, company hardware company nowadays it has a layer of connectivity it has a layer of intelligence it has a layer of of, of sensors if you want so so how do you how do you um, how do you look at these two dimensions? Uh, how do you look at the at the uh, the hardware dimension and the digital dimension? Sometimes hardware, it's it's purely an embodiment. You know, it's a, it's a it's a it's a platform to deliver actually uh, a, a software solution. So so how do you look at these two dimensions when evaluating projects? Yeah. So we don't invest in hardware that only has hardware. It has to have some level of software intelligence connectivity uh, and. I would say connectivity is not even enough now. Like you need, uh, you could say that today, like some form of artificial intelligence or machine learning is almost like the table stakes in uh, in hardware investments. Um, we used to do a lot more consumer. Now we're doing a lot uh, of B two B enterprise, industry, and the health tech solutions. So um, there's generally some pretty advanced stuff uh, within the hardware, and I think for investors. Having the idea that the hardware is just a way to either collect data or act on the physical world, but what you're actually ser selling is a service is a, a much more attractive value proposition because it's more sustainable than one of sales. Why, why the shift? Why the shift from going from B2C to, to B2B? So what are the advantages of these advantages of these both uh, so options? B2C is appealing because it has uh, a lot of visibility to start with potentially very large markets. Um, the problem of B2C is that uh, people's wallets are not infinite. So anytime you sell something that's worth more than 100 euros or dollars, uh, people hesitate. Uh, if, if it's more than a thousand, then people hesitate a lot. But just think about how many items you bought in the last five years that were mo worth more than a thousand euros. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that most consumers don't really have a focus on ROI and really very pressing needs. Uh, what consumers generally want is something that's kind of a nice to have to make their life better. And they don't really calculate ROI. Um, otherwise, there's a lot of you know, types of cars that wouldn't be sold and a lot of phones also that wouldn't be sold. Um, so when you put those two constraints together, the, the lack of focus on ROI and the constraint on price, um, it's actually quite tough. Um, so whereas on the B2B side, um, maybe the number of customers is much smaller, but the value of what you can deliver can be calculated and can be uh, used as a sales argument. Uh, if you help a, a corporation uh, save thousands or millions of dollars, 
the calculation for them is very easy to make, whether or not it's worth trying your thing. So that's, uh, I think that's why some of that shift happened. Uh, another thing is that with the cost constraint, uh, there's just so much technology you can put in a product. If you're doing something with $100, you know, that means $100 retail, maybe you have $25 to, to put in, in the bill of material. Well, you know, once you eliminate a processor, battery, packaging, all that stuff, uh, there's not a lot left. Uh, whereas if you sell something for thousands of dollars, you can put a lot more technology in it. And uh, so of course, some of it can be software, that, but some of the software sometimes need to be processed on the device uh, just to increase performance or to offer a better user experience. So those are important constraints, and I think that's what determined the the shift for us, um, largely. It's it's I find it very interesting, and especially because taking into account that that um, from your fund you invest always pre-seed and uh, pre-product, um, mm -hmm. and we put, if we put together pre-seed, pre-product, hardware, and B two B. Um, okay. I believe, at least from the Spanish uh, investor perspective, but from an investor perspective, that's very contra-intuitive. So, so why this decision? Why are you going that that path? So, yeah, it sounds like a lot of risk in a, in one go. Um, and our approach is that essentially there's different risks, right? You have the technology risk, whether something is possible. Uh, technologically, you have uh, the market risk. Uh, you have some part of that is kind of the timing and sales cycle risk. Um, you have also the team risk, whether the team is solid enough and will go the distance. I think what we have uh, with the fact that we invest via our accelerator programs that we have quite a lot of confidence that we can help go from prototype to market. And that's something that most investors are worried about. Uh, we also have pretty good sense of the technology because we want to see a first prototype that demonstrates the key aspects of the technology. So that helps de-risk the tech. Um, now, the biggest risk for us is actually on the team side uh, because, okay, uh, maybe I'll let me say first a word about the market. Generally, through our knowledge of different markets, through also the pitch that the, the companies do, they've done some market research. And ideally, they have some proof of demand of what they have. Basically that if they can achieve what they say they want to achieve, there will be customers for what they have. So that helps somewhat de-risk uh, the existence of a market. Now, whether you know the, the, the speed of that market will, will be there is another question. For us, the biggest risk is on the team side because if the founders um, don't stay the distance uh, or cannot don't have enough persistence or don't get along well enough, uh, it's going to be a catastrophe. And um, that's uh, much more tricky to evaluate. And I think that's more kind of a people meter. And now through you know the hundreds of investments and the hundreds of founders we've seen uh, invested in, we, I think we have a better sense of, uh, of uh, how to do it, uh, even though there's uh, always a, a form of risk. But is there a, is there a, uh, do you have your own uh, process to do that? So I believe um, after so yes. many investments, you, you already found some characteristics. So how do you do that? Because that's always a tricky one. Eh? So typically, um, applicants go through our website and uh, post uh, answers to some of the questions, also with a video of the prototype on the team. And then if we like what we see on the application, we do conference calls on Skype, typically, because the startups are all around the world. 
Uh, and within about an hour, we'll already get a sense whether there is something there for us. Um, very often, there's a second call, and generally, between that and you know some maybe some extra some short email back and forth, we can make decisions. Um, and it sounds really fast and a bit you know uh, crazy, but you have to keep in mind that over the past six seven years now that hacks exist, we've seen thousands of startups. So we've learned a thing or two about uh, evaluating technologies, evaluating teams, so we can go a lot faster. And also our model is that the accelerator is really our entry point for investment. We invest typically $250,000 for our hacks program or ED bio program for biotech. Uh, in, it's a mix of cash and services. And for us, that's the kind of the first step. What we're really interested in is that the company continues and grows and we keep investing in the seed, series A, series B, and at those steps, we can invest over a million dollars for, for each uh, fundraise. And that's how we reinforce our position. And for us, this accelerator program also acts not only as an accelerator on the, for the startup, uh, but also as for us uh, extensive due diligence. We see them in our office for typically four to six months and we see how they behave, how how they execute, uh, how they you know how they work with others, uh, how cre how creative and resourceful they are. So that helps us a lot uh, make decisions. One more thing I can mention uh, regarding due diligence is that when we see interesting candidates, uh, very often we also uh, turn to our existing portfolio to get their opinion on the technology or or an industry or. In some cases, we also engage with some of the corporate partners or corporate contacts we have. So that helps also evaluate both the technology and the market opportunity. So, well, I, I find it's very interesting. So so why do startups come to you? So definitely one, one thing is, is funding, but then you mentioned that they are going to spend um, some months with you in the office. So so what is special about Hugs Acceleration Program? So most of the startups actually don't really come for the money part of our investment. Um, I think what now is understood is that going, taking a prototype from a lab, uh, taking it to a factory and taking it to market is not easy and that there's a lot of hurdles. And what startups typically do is that they raise tons of money and they're like, okay, let's try to figure this out. And most of them have to figure this out on their own. And it costs them a lot of time, costs them a lot of money, and many of them fail. And what I think that the thing we've demonstrated through our programs is that we can help not only shorten that phase, make it more cost effective, but also empower the startups to not have somebody in the middle and you know, you know, try to do things uh, remotely uh, a bit blind. It's almost like you're trying to cook a new dish in the kitchen, uh, but you're on the you're actually telling the, the chef on the phone how you should cook this and that, and you don't see anything. You cannot test the sauce. You cannot look at the fire. You cannot you know, have any, any sense of what's going on. So we empower the startups uh, with the understanding on how to work with the supply chain. And that's a re really a superpower for them. And that also helps them de-risk their, their product development, not just for the first product, but for future products as well. Actually, it's it's funny because um, this is exactly what we uh, identified ourselves. We started with an acceleration program that it was more generic on science-based ventures, but then it was again and again this question of hardware-based companies coming with a functional prototype, putting it on the top of the table, saying, "Look, we did that. It works. 
now I have to manufacture 500 of these or 2,000 of these. I have no clue how to do it. Mm. And then we look around and we realize this, okay, this, at least nationally, there's no one doing that. So, okay, let's let's learn how to do that. And that's exactly what, what we are doing. And this is, a, this is a difficult path with lots of risk. So what will you see? Which geographic areas do you see more developed for hardware-based ventures? Which are the more mature ones and, and, and why? Well, by sheer number of startups, U.S. is number one, uh, unsurprisingly. Um, there's a lot of great institutions uh, that develop great technologies that can be turned into products uh, with also people who are not afraid of turning that into companies and products. Um, so that's the U.S., uh, is also actually has been rising very fast, and uh, uh, particularly in robotics and health tech, uh, you've seen more and more interesting companies. And uh, it's probably our second largest uh, geography for investments. Third one, so maybe a surprise, is Canada, doing extremely well. And uh, I think it's because they have a, a good number of high-quality engineers and also a good uh, support ecosystem, particularly around uh, uh, Universal Waterloo, for example. That uh, in, where we invested in a number of startups. Um, after that, probably would be the UK. Um, Israel is a bit of a special case because they have very strong local ecosystem. Uh, we're not particularly well connected yet in that ecosystem, so we probably miss out on many of the opportunities because they find uh, a lot of what they need locally. Um, and then there are some geographies that... Uh, so far kind of underperform compared to what you would expect. Uh, Japan is one of them um, in that sense that, that they have a lot of great engineers. They have uh, you know, a great market, obviously, um, but the number of startups being created is not that high. Um, now, if I look more at uh, other geographies, um, Germany is interesting. Also, the number of startups not that high, but uh, they tend to focus on industry, and they're quite interesting in the in that category. Um, and probably that would be a kind of general, yeah, general overview. But it's funny because so basically, Europe is pretty much not on the picture, or very little on the picture. <laughs> well, okay, so Europe has a number I'm of not saying startups. It, I'm not saying yeah. it, but, but one of our interests, so, so mm. we are big proponents of the idea of, of reindustrializing Europe, you know, we, mm -hmm. need, we need an economy, especially coming from Spain, we have an, our national economy is mainly based on services and, and tourism is a, is a key one. We are big proponents of building a, a stronger economy by investing more on, on, on industry. So it goes align and, and, and now that you do the analysis well, is, is not pretty much on, on the picture. Yeah, it's because I don't see Europe as a block. I tend to look at individual countries. Um, and when you compare the size of an economy like uh, Japan or China or US to any single country in Europe, of course, there's a difference in scale. Mm. Uh, UK has a very special situation because English speaking, the connections to US and, and things like that. Um, but I think as a whole, as an aggregate, of course, Europe uh, has a lot of interesting startups. It's about 20, 25% of, uh, of our investments. Uh, US plus Canada is about 50%. And the rest is mostly Asia. So um, in Europe, um, I mean, we've done investments across many geographies. Like we have investments in Portugal. We have investment in Spain, uh, in, in Sweden, Germany, uh, Poland. So. Uh, but the, I don't think 
um, there's one country with a large number uh, on its own, um, aside from from UK, which is you know not not, I mean, geographically a European neighbor, let's say. <laughs> um, and Especially that's probably now. one of the challenges is that uh, kind of smaller economies uh, don't necessarily stand out. The Nordics uh, have uh, an interesting number of companies uh, compared to their size, so kind of over delivering. Um, but yeah, like a. I don't see. I don't really see Europe as as uh, as a group right. uh, for for this because the ecosystems are so different. Yeah. And and what about what about um, so now we're talking mainly about deep tech. It's been in the last years the 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 concept the the term is deep tech, and I think everyone has its own definition. So how how would you define deep tech? Well, there's many definitions, but one would be that you need some kind of science and engineering, and maybe you need some PhD on the team. Uh, that would be kind of a good show, like a shorthand to identify deep tech. Okay, okay. So in, in our case, we talk about industrial startups, and the way we define it is that they are science-based and they involve some sort of manufacturing process. Mm -hmm. So yes, hardware plays a key, a key part, but then it can be also about additives, so it can be about chemistry or or, or things like that. So we see we see that the the whole deep tech or science-based uh, and hardware. Um, uh, ecosystem is growing in the last years, and, and especially investments in hardware, they have been going up. Um, it's still minority compared to, to the so-called tech ventures, so the digital base and service base, but it's, it's, it's growing. So what would you say are the drivers for this growth? And the second question will be not just the drivers, but what are the enablers? What, what is it making it possible for this to happen now? So there's drivers at different levels. So on the founders level, uh, there's a lot of new technologies that are being made possible and uh, that can be now turned into companies at much lower cost, uh, like with the access to cloud computing, with a lot of technology bricks being available, uh, with the ability to engage with supply chains on a much smaller scale. Uh, it's now possible to start companies and get a product to market for much less money than it used to be. Uh, and one good comparison uh, would be to say that, you know, in deep tech, we're probably where internet was in the 90s. So when you still needed, you know, kind of your own servers and gradually transitioning to some kind of hosted things. Um, and that's kind of similar situation. Uh, now, of course, even if you have founders on startups and technologies and the appeal of very large markets, because when you start acting on the physical world, the impact can be enormous. I mean, think about all those industries that have been under-investing in innovation, like the Fortune 500. Um, many, many of those are not technology companies, but they need technology to evolve. Uh, they've done everything they could with software. I mean, there's still probably things they can do, uh, but at some point, you know, you need to touch the atoms. So there's enormous amount of opportunities. Uh, the problem is that Above the founder, above or below, <laughs> depends on how you look at it, the founder layer, uh, there's uh, access to capital. And uh, some of that goes through governments, some of that goes through private capital, like uh, venture capital. Uh, and the challenge for those is that themselves uh, need to be convinced it's an opportunity. Uh, imagine you're an investor in the 90s, you're like, oh, I think this internet thing might work. Uh, you know, that's not a majority. Um, and those people need, in turn, to convince limited partners, so that means institutions, family offices, corporations, 
to give them capital to manage and invest in those startups. And that's probably the biggest barrier is that uh, at the top level uh, or the bottom level, <laughs> the ground level, uh, the limited partners are, tend to be quite conservative. Uh, they have to focus on returns and it's difficult to estimate, evaluate returns in a in areas that are yet uh, that are still very new, um, which is kind of a paradox because in a way that's kind of the original spirit of Silicon Valley was to finance things that were very you know science and engineering uh, rooted, um, but uh, I think over the past twenty years uh, a lot of investors have become very comfortable funding you know marketplaces and SaaS and pure software. So so actually. There are so many questions that come out of, 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 of what you just said. And, and one of the questions that I will have is, so what are you saying or what would you say to those investors um, that are not used to the dynamics of hardware or science base? So what are your arguments to convince them that there is an opportunity here? Um, so that's the, it's, a, it's a good question because it's really important for the growth of the ecosystem. On the one hand, I tend to think you can't convince people of anything, you know? Uh, you can only, um, if they have a doubt, uh, give them information so that they can see uh, what's going on. Um, or uh, the other option is to find more people that already believe it, uh, believe that. Uh, and uh, on the other hand, I think, among the things that can be done is to show the early signs of uh, science-based startups doing very well. And you can see some of that uh, in, uh, in synthetic biology, for example, in food tech, some companies have done really, really well. And food is such an enormous market that uh, it's pretty obvious. Um, in other sectors like uh, you know, smart devices, uh, health, health technologies, some sectors have, have had some early results but if you wait for results to enter the category, by the, almost by definition, you're going to be late. So you're late. Yeah. I think the best we can do is provide information about the opportunity and explain like why it makes sense. And uh, so I'm trying to do that through the podcast uh, you mentioned earlier. Uh, some people we've also published a, a report about uh, deep tech trends that uh, gives a lot of examples of what's going on, so people can learn. Um, and there's a few other, you know, sources here and there, but I think they're just not not very visible, and uh, mm. it requires more effort. And fundamentally, if you want to understand the technology you're investing in, that's going to be require more effort than to just look at the usual KPI or uh, KPIs of a SaaS company. Well, but because a bit that's a bit the thing. So what what we see here is that at least um, in our ecosystem the dynamics of uh, the digital ventures, so the, the, the ones based on services and using digital channels, those are well known, and these people playing that game. The dynamics of the biotech sector are also well known, and, and people, um, uh, well, there's people playing that game. There's but a when you yeah. But there is a playbook, exactly. But there is not, at least from my perspective, there is not such a playbook for hardware-based ventures or, or science-based that is not biotech. And that's always a tricky part. I mean, one of the challenges we find ourselves is that we have this incredible portfolio of, of companies, which they've been doing very well from the initial idea to, to the first, uh, to validate the technology, to the first functional prototype. And they found ways to, found these, to find these uh, phases. 
But when it's time to industrialize, there's literally nobody there. I mean, yes, you are there. And it happens mm -hmm. actually that our ventures maybe they're a bit too mature for your fund. Uh, but there's literally no one there. And, and you just say it, is that that's because there is not a playbook. So, so that's maybe the key that we are missing here. I, I think really the, some of the keys is about uh, highlighting the size of the opportunities. And also maybe people are just going to get, some investors are going to get tired of you know, swimming in a red ocean, competing with all other kind of vanilla investors doing the same type of things, looking at the same type of KPIs. And unless you have superior deal flow and get access to, you know, the startups with all the right numbers and the growth and everything and the great teams, you only got to get second, third tier opportunities. Uh, whereas here is a sector uh, where you have lots of large markets to address and very few, very little competition. Uh, like we're discussing earlier with, uh, with another investor uh, talking about how the valuations have evolved. And as it turns out, you know, in deep tech space, uh, you know, with the pandemic and, and things, I don't think the valuations have changed that much because they were, you know, quite reasonable in the first place. <laughs> we are going to get into that. But actually, um, I was wondering, what would you say is the role of corporates on that uh, specific aspect we are talking about? Because what we see, at least our experience, is that it is the private sector are the corporations, those that you mm. mentioned that they need to look for innovation, yeah. the ones funding, maybe not in a structured way, maybe not in a, in, a, in a very orthodox way, but they are the ones funding those, those spaces. So what is your experience uh, from, from the dimension of the fund that you run? What is the role of the corporate and, 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 and yeah? I think a lot of corporations uh, these days have quite low R&D budgets. Uh, even the big tech companies that have that spend more than 10% of their annual budget on R&D, uh, they still rely a lot on acquisitions uh, to get you know, new services and products. So if the big tech companies that spend the most on R&D are also spending the most on acquisitions, if you're in a sector where you don't spend too much on R&D, well, how are you going to move forward? Um, and how are you not going to be overtaken by competitors that innovate more? So I think a lot of corporations have realized that and they try to practice you know, open innovation, but eventually I think it has also to connect with a, with a innovation acquisition strategy um, with more merchants acquisitions. And the challenge is, let, let's say you're a food company, you're, I don't know, Kellogg's, or you are a consumer company like Procter & Gamble, you used to buy products or new brands in your category, but you're not necessarily used to buy technology companies that might have very different type of offering, very different type of culture. So I think each of those corporations need to build a specific playbook on how to buy technology, on how to work with, and how to buy technology companies. And that's tricky um, because um, you know many acquisitions turn out uh, not great because of a mismatch in culture, mismatch in expectations. Uh, and uh, that's something that, you know, corporations need to, to ramp up knowledge on very quickly. And one way to do that is to uh, become investors in venture funds uh, that gives them access to deal flow, give them access to an array of technologies. And then gradually they can identify through that uh, either build their own practice or, or, or simply um, uh, focus on the acquisition part and the integration part. 
there is a lot of work to, to be done there. And I think the, the triangle, the connection between corporate and a startup, this is this is um, the one that benefits both sides and, and is definitely an enabler for the kind of ventures we are working with. Hey, but you, you uh, brought up the issue of the pandemic. Uh, and I think we are living a moment in which there is lots of uncertainty. We are all trying to figure out um, the current impacts and, and what's going to happen mid and long and long term. Um, can you give us some highlight about? Did you check how is the, the the pandemic affecting your your portfolio? What is the the size of the impact? Yeah, so many of our companies have had a drop in sales. Uh, some of them had to delay fundraising uh, because conditions are difficult. Most investors are focused on supporting their existing portfolio rather than making new investments at the moment. Um, but we also saw some of our companies uh, actually grow during the pandemic because they had uh, an offering that was really compatible um, um, with, the, with the situation. Uh, of course, uh, some of those in uh, healthcare or biotech uh, that were directly relevant uh, had a uh, you know lot of momentum, but we also see that companies doing industrial or enterprise solutions that would reduce human contact by using robots or other type of things, um, also getting a lot of attention. What, what's the the main problem is that the uh, business development is slowed down by the fact that it's more difficult to. Uh, to uh, have face-to-face -face meetings, most diffi more difficult to, to do installations on pilots. Um, so that's, uh, that's what slowed down. Okay, but yeah, so there are some sectors that uh, are benefiting from that. Do you see examples of some of your ventures that um, they develop new opportunities because of the pandemic? They decided to do a spin-off or they decided to re-assign uh, the technology to new applications? Um, we have some. Uh, I have a few examples. So some is was just a you know, small a small move. For example, we had a company that was uh, called Avidbots based in Canada. Uh, they're doing floor industry like commercial floor cleaning robots. Um, those are it, sorry, sorry Ben, isn't this one of your uh, poster childs? Ah, <laughs> a little bit, yes. Because <laughs> yeah, uh, okay. I mean, it's one of the it's one of our moments. It's mature. awesome. Yeah, it's, it's one of our awesome mature companies. Yeah, they, they have over, over 100 people now, and uh, which is quite large for a robotics company. They sell their robots for airports and uh, hospitals and schools all over the world. And basically, they just added some disinfectant to their cleaning solution. They say, okay, now we can clean your floor from the virus. Uh, so for them, it was very easy uh, change. Um, but we have like more um, interesting uh, type of pivots. Uh, another robotics company that was doing logistics robots uh, had some kind of a platform robot where you could put things on on the uh, journey for indoor logistics. Uh, some of the clients reached out to them to ask if they could do something around disinfection. So they looked into it and they just repurposed their robotic platform to put uh, uh, Philips uh, high power UV lights on, on, on it. And they also added infrared cameras. So now they're selling robots. So it took them about just two weeks to repurpose the robot. They're very fast, the Chinese company. And um, they repurposed that robot. And uh, a few weeks later, they were shipping already dozens of them. And so the robot, when there's nobody around, could disinfect uh, a space using uh, uh, UV light. And when there's people around, they could do uh, infrared scanning to check people's temperature. <laughs> You mentioned something, we saw some examples in our portfolio also, but you mentioned something that I think it's key, which is speed. 
and yes. and pro probably when uh, we are talking about the the greatness of you are located in Shenzhen, and and uh, typically people believe that being in China, if you're a hardware startup, it's about price, but it's really about speed. So things can happen very very That's fast. True. Yeah. Um, one obsession we have ourselves is that how can we bring some of that speed. Um, to the local market. So what, what are the needs? And, and examples we saw in Spain is that, um, well, the classic example, eh? we didn't have enough ventilators during the pandemic. Mm. And we saw examples of designing, building, certifying, and distributing ventilators within uh, three weeks time. And wow. this, is not, this is not just a hack. So it's a problem that we got uh, the national agency of the, of the medical uh, uh, device uh, certified. So it made me think that speed is possible even in our markets. It's just a question of reorganizing. So it's not, it's not an infrastructure problem. It's a question of how you put the pieces together. So, so just wanted to pick up on the idea that you mentioned of your company also like reorganizing in just two weeks' time. Yeah, the, the speed is really the key. And one advantage of the Shenzhen ecosystem is just how large and deep the supply chain is uh, from any component to any type of material uh, from, you know, anything in plastic, in wood, metal, whatever you want. And um, the fact that also I think a lot of um, factories and suppliers think a little bit like investors because um, they know that initially when they work with startups, it's not a big volume, it's not a big business. So they really try to figure out who could become a larger client later. And by working with several startups, they're like, okay, well, maybe some of them will stay small, but some of them might grow. And then I'll be the one they're working with, with larger volumes. So I think this is, a, this is also key to have the mind, like if your suppliers are not interested in what you're doing and don't take some level of risk, you always as a small volume startup just beginning and barely knowing what you're doing, you're always going to be at the bottom of the queue. Before going to some questions from the audience, because we are receiving some, um, I would like to ask you about the, the global value chain. So I think one of the lessons we are learning from Europe, at least, is that um, it's becoming even more strategic to keep our manufacturing um, infrastructure uh, locally. Um, can you foresee some shift um, from, uh, we, we had this wave of globalization and mm -hmm. uh, uh, delocation or relocation of manufacturing for the last 20 years. Do you foresee some return of that? Or what are your thoughts about that? Yes, I think um, many governments now have realized that being relying on foreign supply chains uh, is, uh, particularly in times of crisis, a big constraint. Uh, not exactly sure what was the situation in Spain, but here, I mean, the government has been very criticized uh, for not being able to procure uh, masks, ventilators, and tests, and all sorts of things. So I think some of it uh, has to do with, uh, you know, having a national strategic um stock or capacity uh, to produce things. Like in France, there's only four companies, four factories able to produce uh, masks in the entire country. Whereas 
in, in Shenzhen, I'm pretty sure uh, some factories that had nothing to do with masks started almost overnight making masks because they can switch their business on the dime. They used to repurpose the factory line. They're just much more nimble and agile. So um, I think it will help uh, probably repatriate some of that. Um, but the, the challenge is that, you know, it's not just about having one, two, three factories doing this or that. It's, it's really a, a large system. And uh, the Shenzhen supply chain is the result of literally decades of multi-multi-billion dollar investments. Anytime you buy a laptop, you buy a phone, you're actually investing in the Shenzhen supply chain. Anytime you buy a toy, <laughs> that used to be also like a Shenzhen specialty. So, you know, that kind of adds up and it's not so easy to, um, to replicate. That's, that's an interesting one. So the barrier is quite high. I think what might happen that would be more interesting to me is not to try to bring back some of the old stuff, but bring back new stuff. So um, one of the new things is having uh, factories with more automation and more advanced robots. So that could do much more different things and could uh, uh, don't require maybe as much programming because you can just... Uh, uh, like change the change their tasks much more flexibly, uh, so that could be one op one opportunity. So it won't necessarily bring back a lot of jobs, but it bring, brings back manufacturing capacity, which enable other types of job creation, but just not factory jobs. Um, and so that's one possibility. Uh, the other thing that's interesting is uh, things around macro manufacturing. So instead of bringing factories, kind of old style, big where like big space. Uh, bunch of machines in it, you could have very small machines uh, that have some of the key features of larger machines, but at a much smaller scale, lower price, and uh, lower volume. And in our portfolio, we actually invested in a number of companies doing things like that. So we have one company doing a, um, a water jet cutter. And if you want to use water jet in industrial setting, it's big, it's messy, it's expensive. But there's a lot of things that you could uh, you could use it for at smaller scale. So this company called Wazer, based in New York, that's what that's what they do, and they have a machine that's less than ten thousand um, dollars. Same for uh, just to give an example of another kind of micro manufacturing company. Uh, it's a company uh, called Unspun, and they do they make a machine that uh, can um, so they use combination of a three D body scanning and a three D weaving machine to create custom sized jeans. So you can have a pair of pants based on your exact measurements. Um, and so that's really convenient for anybody who doesn't fit into the exact dimension of you know, small, medium, large, and uh, whatever sizes exist. And it could actually make even the sizing of clothing irrelevant because you would move to a new paradigm, which is your size, <laughs> you know, yeah. which is what people want, right? So that's, I have to um, say, I, I, I experienced that. It used to be a company that they shut down. Actually, it was of Chinese origin, I believe, is Soho mm -hmm. uh, or Zozo. 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 Ah, those is, Japanese. Yeah, yeah. It's Japanese, exactly. And it's a pity they shut down because I, I, I got some clothes from there and I love it. I mean, of course, you had to go to kind of a. a Did you have a, the polka dot suit? Yes, exactly. <laughs> you you receive at home this uh, this lycra kind of thing with lots of dots, and then you put your phone there. You scan, but then it, it worked perfectly. I got shirts and t-shirts and jeans, and it was there was no size. They were my size, and they worked perfectly. 
So uh, yeah, that, but that, unfortunately that, this they, was, they closed down. Yeah, they, they changed. Actually, they didn't close. They changed the service. But uh, this, I think, the company is still doing quite well. Um, and uh, it's a Japanese company. But uh, the, you could say this is kind of first more cumbersome type of customization. The 3D scanning thing would be that you go into a cabin and there's a 3D scanner uh, that scans you in your underwear. And then once they have that, uh, there's you know processing and then they get your dimensions and then you can order online uh, you know, any, and then you, have, you can have different cuts. Like if you want like more baggy style, but for your size, you can have that. If you want more tight, you can have that, but they're exactly under dimensions. And um, I think that's really exciting because the, those, the, the machine they use is actually quite small. You know, it could fit in a small apartment and you could have that in almost every city where they have enough customers or distribution centers. So that's, um, that totally changes the, the supply chain of, of uh, the garment industry because there's no reason to ship from products from around the world, from like across the world. There's no reason to stock. There's no inventory. It's all on demand. So and there's much less waste. So it's really interesting to to think that there could be some industrial changes uh, using this type of kind of next generation uh, micro manufacturing machines. This this is a big change. Hey, um, before we we end the next ten minutes, I would like uh, so we got a few questions from from the audience, and and maybe let's see if we can uh, go for a, a couple of them or three of them. So we changed subject completely, but one of our uh, viewers um, is asking from the perspective of a, of a startup, actually, and is asking, um, should you sell the vision or should you sell the technology behind your project? So if someone is coming well, to both. you... <laughs> yeah. uh, of course, both. Um, well, it, it kind of depends a bit on the, the context of the first contact. Um, sometimes... Uh, um, I mean, the, the technology is a means to an end. The technology is there to achieve something that's ideally big. That's what attracts investors. Uh, but then if you, so I, you can start with the vision uh, because I think that's the easiest to understand. And then you can explain some of the how, like how you can do that with your technology and how different it is and how difficult it is and uh, how defensible it is. So that's what I would do. Actually, it, it's funny. We will open a full, a, a complete other debate here. But uh, according to the definition of deep tech, and eh, that it's science-based and there is some sort of PhD on on, on the team, uh, these companies they tend to be more technology push rather than market pull. So yeah. it tends to work the other way around. It's about finding the right uh, market application for that technology. Eh? Yeah. Uh so that's something they have to do. Uh, and some investors are more tuned to helping you through that, finding opportunities for technology. But I would say the majority of investors, they want to hear about the vision and the bigger market opportunity. We have quite a few questions about uh, the future of biotech. Mm -hmm. uh, so one program you're running is uh, in the bio. Right? There is a right. program on, on biotech and medical devices. You just opened, in fact, uh, a branch in, in New York right before the yeah. whole uh, lockdown started. So I don't know how, how is this it working. It was all part you. of a plan. <laughs> but maybe uh, summarizing yeah. a little bit the, the, the questions, oh. because there are many questions yeah. about how do you see uh, the evolution of biotech? It seems to be a winner. So, and it also mm. some questions around, we see a lot of new investments in biotech and investors are all bullish about biotech. What's your take on that? 
but also I was wondering, yeah, you, you made a big bet on this area. So give us a bit. Uh, uh, yes. The picture. So um, I think it's important to distinguish a bit things between within biotech. So our specialty is synthetic biology uh, with IndiBio and uh, health tech devices within hacks. Uh, but I'll, I'll focus maybe more on the synthetic biology. Um, so I think it's pretty clear that every, everybody got a wake-up wake call that uh, with the, the coronavirus, we all have bodies, there's a physical world around us, and that we need to deal with it, and it's actually important. So it brought a lot of attention to biotech sector. And uh, uh, I think overall it's a tailwind. Um, we don't really do like the general pharma things with like molecules on the, you know, long years of research and type of things. That's not for us. It's more like pharma companies. Uh, but what we see is that um, our, our synthetic biology companies, uh, whether they're doing diagnostics or um, uh, lab grown food, uh, we have invested in companies like Memphis Meats uh, that's doing a meat in the lab, uh, Perfect Day uh, that's doing a milk protein. Um, Clara Foods, those companies are doing fantastic. And the, um, I think people also realize that when supply chains are disturbed, it's not just for manufacturing, it's also for food. And uh, that there's uh, the problem of food supply and food safety uh, that are very major. So we were very early investors in cellular agriculture from Memphis Meats about five years ago. And uh, we've done a number of investments in the field, uh, ranging from uh, meat to fish. Uh, we've done uh, mushroom cultures to create uh, lab-grown leather. Um, and uh, now we're looking at, uh, um, interestingly, uh, lab-grown uh, vegetarian protein. Or, or plant, lab-grown plant, actually not necessarily for food, but plant protein. So that, that's one of the sectors. Uh, but we're also open to a lot of computational bio uh, therapeutics. And um, now to answer your question about uh, what's going on in New York. So New York, yeah, the program is just literally, literally just opened this month. Uh, it's been backed by uh, the state of New York, actually, who's throwing $25 million over five years uh, to have us invest in about 100 companies because they see there's a lot of talent, but not a lot of support for early stage biotech companies. And uh, those companies can come from all around the world. Like uh, we invest in European companies going there as well. Um, and uh, yeah, we had to go full remote until uh, things can change. Uh, the transition has been a bit uh, you know, intense, uh, but as it turns out, uh, for some companies actually more convenient because they don't need to relocate and they can get the advice and the support they need. Uh, sometimes they have access to facilities already where they are, so they don't necessarily need our lab in New York. Uh, but obviously, there are also some parts that are missing, uh, part of the interactions between the companies, that, which is very important uh, because you can get a lot of advice from other founders and other startups. Uh, that's one of the key uh, values of us having physical spaces. Uh, also, from our team, it's easier you know, to just turn your chair, just walk a few steps rather than set up a call. Um, but uh, overall, yeah, very bullish on uh, biotech. I think biotech is getting uh, in the spotlight right now. And uh, it's great because uh, uh, we're ready for that. That's, that's awesome. Maybe before, I would like to end up with one question before we finish. And mm -hmm. um, this is going back to the, the idea of the team eh? and the importance of the team. So um, uh, someone is asking, uh, with the team being so crucial, how can founders improve their odds when building the initial team? How to identify or how to choose best suppliers for a new technology? Uh, and when to start looking into this? 
So the team part, that's a, a tricky one because people generally team up uh, with people they know uh, and they don't necessarily have a lot of choice depending on where they are. Um, there's an interesting program you might be familiar with called Entrepreneur First, uh, mm -hmm. who's basically putting together about 50 plus people who want to start companies and have you know, a deep tech uh, uh, background. And they mix them up and they, give, they pay them for a few months and they help them to try different teams. So it's kind of a lean startup applied to teams. And uh, it was actually the, the, the interview of our first podcast uh, with the, the co-founder of uh, Entrepreneur First. Um, so that's, uh, that's probably one model. Um, now, if you have an existing team, uh, what might be interesting is to see whether you're covering everything from uh, the technology standpoint, generally what you have, uh, but also the business capabilities and also the organizational and communication capabilities. If nobody in the team is a strong communicator or is organized, the risk you have with such a team is that you have crazy research, chaotic research, and you never converge into a product and you're never able to sell a product. If you add organization, maybe you will get to a product, but if you don't have communication on business skills, uh, then um, you might never get the attention on the open the channels to sell it. So at SOSV, for every team we invest in, we get them to do an evaluation based on their uh, a test of their preferences. It's called the HBDI, Herman Profile. And they go through that, and that helps the team understand their, their strong, strong spots uh, and their weak spots. The strong parts are generally that they have a vision, they have technical skills, they're very analytical, and the weak spots almost everywhere uh, for across all our programs is that they're not very organized and they don't, they're not very good co at communicating and at selling. So at least identifying that, uh, they can decide to either apply themselves to learn those skills or try to find the right uh, additional co-founder or hires uh, to help them go through that. So I think that's, so you, uh, that's what helps. You will go for them learning the skills so is not hacks uh, providing them support on those areas. Well, there's just so much we can do. Like over time, uh, they, so through our program, they can learn some of that, but eventually some of them has to do that. Uh, it's probably a full-time job at some point. So Either they like it and they learn to do it or they, and they want to learn it or they don't. And in that case, it's better they stick to what they're good at and where they add the most value for the company and find additional talent uh, that would uh, you know, plug that gap. No, that's clear. So, hey, thank you very much, Ben. I think this has been a, a fantastic conversation and I'm so happy to, to reconnect uh, with you. And, and I hope that we can see each other uh, again in person uh, very soon, either in, uh, we're planning to do that in Hello Tomorrow in Paris, but it was canceled. So hopefully postponed. at the end of the year. Maybe postponed, yeah, postponed. Yeah, yeah. postponed. <laughs> or otherwise, exactly, or otherwise at the beginning of next year in, in our own event in Barcelona. So thank you very much for your time. And um, with that, I would like, I would like to thank you and I would like to thank the IQS Tech Factory and Barter teams uh, for making this event possible. Thank you very much. Uh, look forward to see you in a couple of weeks time.